The Lord be with you, everyone. And we continue tonight in looking at um, this beatitude where Jesus says, Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, As we come into this, uh, I'll just say this. If you see my face begin to shine, um, that is not the anointing. Um, It is that we're having problems with our air conditioner. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, the pure in heart. And before we get into what I want to say tonight, um, remember this word pure. It's it's a unique word, actually, in the Scripture. We we talk about uh, sin being forgiven. We talk about sin being cleansed. But pure, pure, it's a unique word. It speaks very specifically of something. And that something that the word pure speaks of is that it is free from any external addition. The quality or even the life of what we're talking about has not been diminished. It has not been poisoned. That is, nothing has been added to it. You've got the original intention of whatever we're talking about. And so we, we could reference pure milk or pure alcohol or a river that has not been made evil by the dumping of, of waste. Um, it's pure. The waters are fresh and clear. And within the water, there is so much life that everything is growing and the fish are leaping. That's pure. But um, when something's been added to it, uh, depending on what that something is, it will always diminish it. It's always diminishing. But if poison has been added, then it means that what was pure is now impure and in a state of danger. And the impurity that is behind this, I mean, if Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, my immediate question is, what are the impure? Well, a little further on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of a single eye. Do you remember that? It's too big to get into by itself. But just down there, I believe it's in chapter 6, and he speaks of this single eye, which, as we said, means not folded. That is, it's, it's single vision. And then he speaks of the evil eye, which is, and in the Greek language, it is doubled, it's folded. So now you have two, and the double vision. Well, in James chapter 4, verse 8, this double-mindedness or double vision is directly associated with impurity. And so, what is impure? What is double vision? It is that a person is seeing Two contradictory, shall I say, opinions. Um, Or or could I even say they are seeking, and that's about as far as they could get, but they're seeking, they're trying to believe in two contradictory things. And so when you try to believe two contradictory things, that is something has been added 
to your vision. And that addition confuses everything. You can no longer see straight. And what you do see is so blurred, you're not sure of anything. And so impurity, the presence of something that blurs and makes impossible the clear vision of God. And the scripture, of course, tells us that that is the great lie. We've spoken about that so many times. I'm just referencing that in the Garden of Eden, what has been called original sin, which is a phrase, quite frankly, that um, it has confusion in itself. Um, but in the scripture, it doesn't ever speak of original sin. It calls it the great lie, the lie, the lie. And it's the lie that Satan spoke to the first human beings, Adam and Eve. Um, and could I say this? When we say the word Satan, um, <clears throat> I, I don't know the image that comes into your mind. Most people in the West, uh, they have the image that is as old as, well, back in 1200, 1300. Um, but the, the image of that caricature um, the the horned thing and, and with tail and cleft hoofs and so on. And, and if not that, some monstrous creature uh, comes to our imagination. It's very hard to say what people think when we say Satan. But the fact is, it's an untranslated word. The same as the word devil is an untranslated word. And we would do better and get clearer thinking if we translated it. Um, it, it simply means accuser, accuser. And that is used sometimes in the scripture where it says that he's the accuser of the brethren. Um, and also it means that if we're going to use the word Satan, then we should say the Satan, that is the accuser, uh, accuser in the sense that he's always accusing and accusing uh, with his lies. And that was the beginning of sin, the, the lie that came out of the mouth of the accuser caused sin in the first place. And the word devil uh, diabolus, and diabolus is the, the word, and, and should be translated because it means the divider or the separator. And the lies that the accuser speaks are intended to separate man away from God and man away from man. And, and so you you have separation. And from the fall, from, from the beginning of this polluting of the pure life of God that man was created to participate in, it was polluted. And into it came not just something like an addition of water, but came in a deadly poison. The river of life had the dumping of the lie into it, and everything died, and a new kind of life occurred, which is death life. And, and it was a terrible pollution, impurity. And the lie that the accuser 
injected into the very spirit of, of mankind in the Garden of Eden was the lie concerning God, that, that God was not the God of love, he was not the God of truth. In fact, the basis of what the, the, the lie was in the garden was that God had lied and that they would not die if they ate of the tree. And it was a lie then to the man or mankind, the man and the woman, and that lie was concerning themselves, that they were not dependent upon the great God of love and life for their life, but rather they were independent, that they were created to do their own thing and be their own God. And the great lie concerning circumstances, so that when the circumstances of life happen, then the accuser accuses and blames, always blames, and ultimately will get to blaming God for doing this to us. I say the lie, that was the great entrance into the pure river of life. And once that is accepted, then mankind is polluted and, and polluted at every level. There's no part of humankind that is not touched by the pollution of the lie. And it brings blindness so that the human, you and I outside of Christ, we cannot see God as he really is. We're confused and we're blinded, nor can we see ourselves as we really are, but feel we're worthless and useless and we can't see each other, and so on and so on. Pollution. The pure in heart see God. So the question is then, uh, how does this take place? How, how do the pure in heart see God? And I decided to illustrate what I'm trying to say here rather than try to say it without, uh, shall I say, the real-life story behind it. And the story I want to illustrate is in Psalm and number 3. Psalm number 3. Um, and you will note at the top of the psalm, when it describes the time and reason for David composing it, it says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And you might remember that Absalom, the son of David, had um, promoted himself and had announced that he was the new king and therefore had to get rid of his father. And the people had gathered to Absalom in great numbers and David had to flee from the city. And so he wrote this psalm at that time. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. And then notice somewhere on that part of your page in your Bible, it will say Selah, which means rest, pause in life. Then he goes on in verse 3, but 
Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. I'll leave it there. Um, Psalm number three. Yeah, Absalom. Um, Absalom was the, what shall I say, he was the handsome. He was the charismatic kind of kid. I mean, he just had that something magnetic. He drew people to him. Always had. And he knew it, and that was his problem. He knew he was handsome, and and so he he comes on like like the the what well, he had long hair because he had beautiful hair, so he let it grow, and so he loved to race in chariots, uh, and so he races through the streets of Jerusalem on his chariot with his hair flying behind him. Nobody could miss him. And he made a point of continually gathering with the ordinary common people and telling them how great it would be if he was king. Or he was kind of a snake in the grass in terms of the family. He was now marching on Jerusalem, having proclaimed himself as king, and has made his intention known he's going to rid the land of David and take over the palace and become the king that everybody wants. But it wasn't only that. That, that is bad enough when, you, when your own son, your own flesh and blood is actually seeking to kill you. But worse, if you could say so, the people that had for these many years, decades, they had looked to David as, as the source of all the blessing that came into the land. He was the man of God. He was the one that everybody looked to. And now it says that those people, they were rising up along with Absalom and on the streets it wasn't some all, only on the streets. It got inside the palace, so David heard it. it. It was the gossip on street corners. It was what everybody was talking about down at Starbucks. It was, they said, there is no deliverance. And that word deliverance is, in the Hebrew language, the same word as salvation. And it contains in it the idea of his hope of ever knowing God. They said there's no salvation left for him. They, and, and he said, David said, they're saying of my soul. That is, they're not just speaking of my physical presence as king. They're, they're speaking of my intimate relationship with God. They're making a judgment upon me in my relationship with God. They're saying there's no salvation left for him. They're, they're saying the, 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 the old chap's done. He's finished. God has abandoned him would be another way of saying that. God's finished with him. It's over. So why should we hang around and go down with him? Let's go to Absalom. That's where the action is. That's what he's hearing. And of course, 
it was all very real, even though it would appear that the the, the fact that Absalom had proclaimed himself king came as a, a surprise. And the fact he's now marching on Jerusalem. I mean, he he crowned down in the south and he's marching up to Jerusalem. He's He's only about, what, probably three days marching away. And, and so David's got to get out of here. And so he fled. What a picture. From the beginning of First Samuel, where we see the, the picture of the teenager slaying Goliath and all Israel saying that this is, this is the man. And to, to know Samuel whispering in his ear that he's the new king of Israel. From there to this that the man is now fleeing for his life before his son with with the people saying, you're done, you're finished, it's over. So he goes as a refugee. He he had some sort of a, an army with him, um, but hardly big enough to, to handle the problem. He, he wasn't sure of anything. And then came the news that his very best friend had gone over to Absalom. And when I say best friend, um, it, it was the, the friend that you could say it was possibly the only friend that David had. You know, when you're, you're the top of the heap, when you're a king, especially in those days, you, you didn't expose your heart to anybody. You were always on duty. You were always king. But there had to be a time when you went into your innermost chambers, shut the door, took off your shoes, put up your feet, and have someone to just be yourself with. Well, David had that. He, the, the name of the chap what was Ahithophel. Yes, don't try and pronounce that one. Um, Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was his, I mean, his dearest friend, their best friend. The man who knew David better than anybody knew David. The, the man who knew David's secret heart, who, who knew what he would do under pressure. Ahithophel knew it all. Only he's now gone over to Absalom. I mean, that, that's enough. D- David wrote another psalm about that. I believe it's Psalm 55 where he said that you, we, we spoke together and you, your, your words were like butter, but you read to stab me in the back. In fact, the words that David used concerning Ahithophel are quoted in the New Testament as describing Judas in his betrayal of Jesus. Oh, this is deep. And again, I emphasize, they said of his soul... This was to them. This was not just a, a passing event. They're saying this. This deals with the very soul of this man. He's done. He's finished. It's over. And so he leaves Jerusalem as a refugee, with just the clothes on his back and whatever possessions he could grab before they flee. And they're they're going to go over the bridge of Kidron, and they're going to go into what a thousand years later would be called the Garden of Gethsemane. And they would go through there and up the side of the mount, and there at the top, as David looks down upon the city, can you enter his feelings? 
The Hebrew people wore their feelings on their sleeve, very literally. And so David was dressed in sackcloth, possibly had ashes in his hair, which was the way one went to the funeral of a dear friend. And or if you were in a state of such despair, depression, and mourning, you wore sackcloth, and the ashes in your hair was a message to everybody. I'm in, I'm in such a state of mourning that uh, please don't, don't talk to me right now. Well, David didn't only flee as a refugee. It says he, he wore sackcloth as if he's going to his own funeral as though he's contemplating the funeral of a life's work. It's all over, and I don't know who to trust. If Ahithophilus left me, then who can I trust? And he's in such a state of the the, the darkness of his feelings that some of these people who were saying he's done, finished, and abandoned, they, they were coming along the road uh, and throwing stones at him. Can you imagine this? And and as they threw stones, some of the army that was with him, they said, we're going to get those people. And David says, don't, don't bother. Maybe they're right. Huh. He, and he's going to go down the other side of the mountain, and that will lead on out into the wilderness, out into the desert, where he'll have to regroup and decide what he's going to do with his son and with his future. And so he looked over Jerusalem, and and at that time, if he didn't write the psalm at that moment, which he possibly could have done, they could have stopped at the top of the mountain, sort of gathered everybody that was coming up behind them, and he could have written this psalm. David was very apt to rest into God at the most unlikely moments. But if he didn't write it then, he wrote it within the hour of then. And he reports it. We read it. Uh, but, but just a minute. Why? See, you've got to ask these questions when you read something like this. Why would the people say that God has abandoned him. Why, why would they say that? What, what has so radically changed their mind? And why would Absalom pick this moment to announce himself as king? Ah, it all comes together. You see, very recently, <clears throat> I would put it about a year, 18 months earlier, you, you have that sordid, and there's no other word for it, that sordid event with Bathsheba, his next-door neighbor, and he has that terrible affair with her, which resulted in essentially the murder of her husband. And then she is taken into David's house, and they're, they're married, but, oh, yeah, yeah, there were no secrets. Oh, I'm sure they tried to keep it a secret, but but her husband was a, a star of the army. He was one of the heroes. He was, you know, special forces. And when he dies as he does, and when they see Bathsheba taken into the house of David, well, of course, the rumor mills buzzed. 
Everybody was talking, and people in the palace who had some insight, they added their three cents, and the, the whole world knew. They knew what had happened, and, and that they were shaken to the core. Their hero, their hero has committed adultery and allowed and arranged the murder uh, of, of the husband. And, and it was there after that, you know, people, their, their, their slander began to say, just, just a minute, anybody that could do, God is, God can't forgive that. God's abandoned him. He, he's finished. He's done. And of course, that's that. Now we said, that's why Ahithophel left him. Why? Because, and you might not know this, but Ahithophel, David's best friend, was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And when David did what he did, Ahithophel said, I will kill that man. And although he continued smiling and continued being there as David's official friend, um, he was planning his demise. And so when Absalom proclaimed himself, Ahithophel went to Absalom and said, no one in the world knows David like I do, and I'm with you. Oh, yeah, it begins to all come together. And Absalom knew the mood of the people. He knew what they were saying. And so this was the moment for an opportunist like Absalom. It all fits together. And David now, can, 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 you, can you imagine his feelings? Please, we're talking of a real human being here. So real. His feelings. And the darkness that swirled about him. But one more thing, this wasn't merely the conclusion of the people. Behind the people is the accuser and the divider. Because what they're saying, that's the lie. What they are saying, accusing David and making a judgment about God and saying that he, God, must have forsaken David. There's a limit to God's love, you see. That, that, the people didn't come up with that. It was dropped into their head by the accuser. The original slanderer, the original gossip, he accused David, and in accusing David, accused God. And he, the Satan, is the devil, Diabolus, that is the divider. And so seeking to divide David from the people and, above all, to separate and divide David away from God, that he might listen to what the people were saying. And so the people were but pawns in the accuser's hands. But you see... That's one of the greatest statements of the grace of God in the Old Testament. Of course, we live under an even greater revelation of the grace of God. So if this upsets a person, then it tells me they've never yet cracked the New Testament. 
You see, David had called upon the love of God. He'd called upon the grace of God in Psalm 51. You can read it. And he looked at what he had done back there with Bathsheba and, and, and looking at it had cried out to God and called upon his covenant love and his covenant forgiveness and had been assured of forgiveness and acceptance. And as far as God was concerned, this was dealt with and done and David was forgiven. That's the fact that all the accuser's words were seeking to upset. But that being so, and David assured of that, he was still deeply hurt. And uh, deeply hurt. Boy, I should come up with a better expression, shouldn't I? I mean, deeply hurt, that's only the surface. This man is being torn apart. This man, I mean, is, is, is there a pile of mud deep enough that he's being buried in? The feelings concerning his own son, the feelings concerning his best friend forsaken him, the feelings concerning the loss of all things back there in the palace, he doesn't have a thing left. And his life work, this, David was in his 50s, coming on 60s, and, and I mean, his life work is, is all gone down the toilet. And the sackcloth and the ashes only expressed in a symbolic fashion the thoughts that are going through his head. I, I want you to know this, that knowing the glory of our God in the face of Jesus Christ and walking in the presence of the Holy Spirit does not make us unfeeling humans, sort of heavenly robots, if you like. And you, you meet people, and I'm, I'm afraid for them sometimes, that they're going through something that is, well, it's in this category, and, and, and they look at you with stony face, with no feeling, and they, they would just report everything is well, everything is good. No, you're, you're allowed to express your feelings because you're human. You're a real person. Faith is not living in denial. Huh. And so David unashamedly reports what the people are saying. He reports exactly what's happening to him right there in the first opening words of the psalm. My adversaries have increased. That is, they're multiplying like roaches. There are many rising up against me. They're saying of my soul there's no deliverance, no salvation for him in God. But just a minute, just a minute. Yeah, he's being, he's not in denial. He's saying, this is what I hear. This is what I feel. In fact, further down, he reports that he, he did that. He called on the Lord with a loud voice. That, that, that is, with intention. It wasn't just another thought passing through his head in this tsunami. It, it was 
a loud voice in which with intention and being specific he calls upon God. Calls upon God. But this is not a pity party. He's not spiraling down into depression. Read it again. He's not arguing with the people. He's not spitting out his fury and cursing at them for what they're doing. Uh, nor, Nor is he angry and getting ready for revenge and speaking back over the city. I'll get you and you'll pay for this. And nor does he debate with the accuser. They never have, never ever have a conversation with Satan. Never, never. Never did it in the scripture. He shares all of this with the Lord. O Lord. That's how it begins. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased and so on and so on. And then in verse 3, But thou, O Lord. And then in verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. And then it, it says in verse 5, I awoke for the Lord sustained me. Oh, please. I mean, this is a little psalm. We've only got, uh, you know, five, six verses that we read. There's only two more after it. And yet again and again, he references He, listening to what is being said, experiencing this hurricane of feelings and the the darkness that is around him, but he continually sees it, reports on it, thinks about it in the presence of and in the act of sharing with the Lord. Now, I've got to. I've got to insert this. It really demands a whole hour, maybe a series, even by itself. But I've, I've got to report this. This word, Lord, it's a tragedy, and I use my words very advisedly. That that's how it states, Lord. You notice it's in capital letters, all L-O-R-D. It's all in caps. See the word that is there in the Hebrew language, is, and the closest we can get to um, saying it is Yahweh. It's actually uh, four letters, Y-H-W-H. And um, why why can't we pronounce it? it? It goes back, and this is the key to everything, Exodus 3.15, where Moses asked of God, who are you? What's your name? When I go to deliver Israel out of Egypt, who shall I tell them sent me? And, and the Lord said, it's, it is a, 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 the moment of moments, I would say, in, in time and space, God revealed his personal name. He said, this is who I am. And, and he says, my name is I am that I am. Read it, Exodus 3.15. It will all be in caps. This is, I mean, etch it. Etch it into time. Place it inside your head and heart. The name, the personal name of God, I am that I am. Then in the next line, sort of as a commentary on that, 
He says, go and, and tell Israel, I am sent to you. And again, I am is in caps. And then in the next line, it, it says, this word, Yahweh, is my name forever. And, and so we must assume, though the, the word Yahweh is, again, very iffy to try to say what it means. But to me, it's pretty obvious. It, it, it comes after, I am that I am. I am Yahweh then is some Hebrew word that sums that up. The I am God. Then how on earth do we end up with Lord? Good question. The fact that the word Lord here is a monument to, first of all, the Old Testament Israelite fleeing from any personal relationship with God. They were terrified. And, and couldn't even conceive of a relationship with God. And, and so instead of, of even putting Yahweh, let alone I am, which should be there, no, they, they took out the, the vowels and gave us uh, letters we couldn't pronounce. And, and then that was, was too intimate too. So, so they instead put in the word Lord from another title of God, which is good enough, but it's not the name of God. It's Adonai, which translates as Lord. And they put that in there and gave a great sigh of relief because I am is God, the person of God in his three-person glory. Here, now, I am Lord, well, that means he's superior and I'm inferior and I bow before him and we got rid of the relationship. We got rid of the person of God. But then when they translated the, the word into the Greek, they, they followed the Jews as they fled from God and they, they, they translated it, Lord, oh dear Lord, why? Look, every time you see that in the Old Testament, and it, you'll see it a gazillion times, in your mind, maybe in your saying, translate it to what God said. I am the I am. Oh, this, this gets good, because he is saying, he, he's addressing God by his personal name. His personal name. You see, when we say God, that, that's just saying, well, he's, he's God, God above all other gods. It's like you are human. God is God. But your name, uh, they don't, your, your wife doesn't call you the male human, does she? Uh, you, you don't call your children, you know, the boy child or the girl child. No, no, they've got names, personal name. You don't look at me and say, I'm just human. You say, Malcolm, and, and, and God, God said my name is I am. It's personal. It's intimate. And, and it was given at the time when he was making covenant with these people by delivering them out of Egypt. And covenant speaks of love union. I am. I am. Well, we can't say that. I can never say of me that I am. I mean, 
I could, but uh, if I'm going to be correct, I would have to say I am because he is. You see, I'm a dependent creature. And so my I amness is always dependent upon him. But this one simply says I am. That means he's independent. He is not receiving life from any. He is the fullness of life. He doesn't have some love. He is love. And he gets it from nowhere because he is its original source. Do you understand? Nobody makes God alive. He is life. I am. I am. And if I look into this moment, he says, I am. I'm here. I look behind me to my past and he says, I am. And to my future, I am. I cannot escape his presence, his immediate presence, his personal presence, his love presence. When David said, I am, he says, oh, I am. How my adversary, you you get it? He says, you're here, you're now, you're my personal covenant friend. You know me and you're everything that I shall ever need. You are the I am. When when, I, I said this really demands another hour all by itself. But you see, I am. I've said it already. He didn't have it. He is. He's the, I am, independent. You see, he doesn't get it from anywhere. So really, we we should be saying that he's not merely alive. You see, he's aliveness. He is livingness. Right? He's loveness. He's being. He's here. He's now. There's no past with him. He doesn't say, I was. He says, I am. There's no future. He doesn't say, I will be one day when you get your act together. No, just, I am. That's it. He's always present. He's always the here and always the now. There's another phrase. It is nowhere near like this one, but... Um, used especially when the uh, people of the Old Testament got out among pagans. They used it a lot. They, they called him the living God, meaning that all the other gods, all the fantasy gods, pretend gods, cheap Walmart gods, you know, all those gods that you were there, they're dead. He says, you made them. You got a piece of wood and you chipped out, you know, the face of some creature and said, that's my God, the dead. He said, our God is the living God. He is livingness. The whole creation hangs upon this God. It's the summation of all life. And of course, when Jesus came, what was the favorite way he described himself? I am. That's why the Jews went crazy when he said that. Do you remember they tried to kill him? He said, before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember that one? And of course, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the do- I am, I am, I am. That wasn't just saying, oh, by the way, that's who I am. No, he's saying that he is the presence of the I am. And then after the resurrection, and he comes to John, 
and he says, I am the first and the last. I am he, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. He's livingness. He's not merely alive. He's destroyed death. And he's in the middle of the situation. The situation exists inside of him. And so David, he shares it with the one that, that is his very air that he breathes. He doesn't have to say, God, are you here? I can't feel you right now because they're saying this about me and they're saying that. No, it begins, I am. They're saying this about you. You're in the middle of this. We're one, you see. And everything that this situation needs, you are. You're the presence in which I live and move. And so this isn't a pity party. He's not turning in on himself and saying, David, have you seen what they're saying about David? Or poor me. Nor does he say, it's their fault. He doesn't bother with faults, doesn't blame, doesn't revenge. He just says, I am. You're here. What are you saying about it? What, 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 in this moment, what do you reveal of yourself? And I say he cried aloud with his voice, not because God was hard of hearing or distant, but when you've got all these feelings passing through and all these uh, thoughts trying to find a branch to land on, it's good to shout above them all, or shout above the zoo, the bedlam of noise. And carry my feelings into that shout and carry my pain. It's, it's yours. You're the I am. You're inside my feelings. You're inside my pain. You know what I'm going through. So what are you revealing yourself to be in this present moment? What of your I amness are you now revealing to me? It, it, it's interesting Boy, this is something else that would go with that if ever we got an hour to do it. It's the Hebrew language, and it's very hard to put into words with our Western way of thinking how they thought. We, we a lot of our worldview, the way we think, the way we speak and write, it's about something about it we're, we're it's just part of how we think about life that we can talk about something in an abstract way and so we're big on information and the more information you've crammed into your head the more educated you're supposed to be or or we have those people you know the people who are into trivia and, you know, how far south do penguins come? Well, you see, only a Westerner could even ask that question. Because to these people who wrote the Old Testament, it was a revelation in this present moment, not of an abstract piece of fact or information, but because it's happening. So they never, they could not, comprehend studying about God. You couldn't study God. You knew him because he acted in your life and was doing something and was, be, in fact, to say the B 
being of God in Hebrew would be to say the doing of God, because you didn't know him outside of his doing. It's action, action. And it's, it's, I don't know how it is with you that are listening, but I have um, lectured in, in theological seminaries and universities, and that, that's where the whole thing falls apart, because the, the students sit there to take notes about this thing I'm talking about, and the moment I suggest that right there in the lecture hall they can know the God I'm talking about, they flee the place. And I mean that physically, they flee. Because the idea of a God who is now the I am doing, being who I am, is totally foreign. But that means, and this is what I'm getting at, then God never revealed himself until it was a time and a situation to do it. You follow me? People say, why isn't the Trinity in the Old Testament? Because they didn't need that. Until God the Son actually became one of us, we didn't need to know. So, only when Jesus is born do we now need to know what's going on. Because God is acting. God is revealing there's Father who sends Son. And so, he does it, and in the doing, now we've got words for it. And in the Old Testament, it's always the case. You see, all our idea of education is useless. God never tells you something just so you know it. He, he, he tells you in doing it. I see, I could really take off on that, but that's what's happening here. See, David says, he's the I am. He's in the middle of this. Well, what, what, what revelation? What are you going to do and in the doing reveal yourself to me? That, that, that's, he, he reveals a new vision of himself as the situation demands. He never, ever, gives us abstract information, satisfying some religious curiosity. Uh, David, um, assured of his forgiveness, assured of his standing in, in, inside of the love of God, accepted of the Lord. Now he, he's saying, look what they're saying. You're in the middle of this with me. What, 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 what are you doing now that you revealed to me? who you really are in a new way. Uh, let me say this quickly. Um, we do consequence for our decisions and actions. Yeah, this all happened. You, I mean, if you just trace it back, as I tried to very briefly, yeah, what he did with Bathsheba, uh, it's like throwing a rock in a pond and the waves go on and on and on. And there were consequences. Of course, there were consequences to David, but there were consequences to these other people that had to deal with what, what they'd heard and what they'd seen. There are consequences. Ne never think the, the gospel isn't magic. You know, you hear it sometimes from, from would-be 
you know, excited enthused evangelists who say, you just say this prayer after me, and it's all kaboom, you know, everything's changed, everything's wonderful. Well, yeah, it is, but not in the way you're saying. Because you see, yes, we consequence for what's happened. Please understand that. Unless we get that straight, we all need to go to rehab. No, no, the, our, our teenagers and 20s and 30s need to know there's consequence to when they stick a needle in their arm. There's consequences to every word I say and every decision I make and every act I follow through with. But the fact is, this is the fact, I am in the midst of your consequences. That is, this God doesn't merely forgive and say, well, nothing's going to happen. No, life will happen now as it would never have happened before. But, oh, what a but. I am going to walk in the consequences with you. That is... The consequences of what you did will bring about new revelation. So much so that so many of the Psalms will be written after that thing with Bathsheba because in the consequences of that, David is realizing who God is in a way he'd never known it or realized it before. And at that point, it says Selah. And I know we don't usually read that when we're reading the Scripture. It's just sort of Selah. And um, the commentaries tell us, well, that was for the musicians. And you sort of take a rest as you're playing this thing. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. But the, the fact is, it means pause, rest. Here it is. I've come as a refugee. I come with their swirling feelings around me, with the noise of their voices in my ears, and, and, and I'm conscious, and I direct all my attention to the I am who is with me now, of course, who loves me now, who is bonded in covenant union with me now. Okay, then let me rest let, let me take that in. Let me review the situation now completely aware of the presence of this incredible I am. And out of that, he says, but. Oh, but. That should be written in purple, underlined in red, and highlighted in yellow. But. That's what they're saying. That's their opinion that comes straight out of the guts of the accuser and the separator. But there's another opinion here. There's another actor here. There's someone else at work here. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. But thou, but thou, we we don't have that in English anymore. It's, of course, the verb to be, as you might have learned in school where, you know, I am, that's the first one, isn't it? Then the second one is, thou art. But of course we've become so educated we've cut that out now. You only find it in the scripture, the thous. It's, it's the personal. So God says, I am. That is, I be. My response is, thou, thou the God who calls me beloved and the one I respond to and 
Rest in his love, thou, thou, O Lord, I am again. Yes, but, you say, but, the opinion of the people just decimated. Look, I, I came into the studio and it was pitch black. We don't have windows here. And, and well, I didn't, see, I, I didn't rebuke the darkness. I didn't cast the darkness out. Nor did I get buckets to try and haul it out. I just switched on the light. And the darkness is gone. Do you see the point? David is looking into the darkness that is being hurled at him from the accuser in these various ways. And he just says, I am. You, the I am, thou, my personal friend, I am, thou. And what's happened? Well, the light turns on. That is, David becomes aware. He experiences. His whole being is opened up now to the light of truth. And the truth is the person of this glorious God, who is light, who is life, but He says, but, but thou, O Lord, the the presence of this limitless person who is limitless personal energy that shatters the lies and the darkness that would poison the soul and make him impure. But thou, O Lord, that that ends all... Ends all discussion. Ends all human logic. I don't care what you say. Well, this is logic. This is not. No, it's ended. We live by the logic of God. Uh, and he says, Thou, O Lord, and, and gives us that list, doesn't he? That, that Thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. That is, all sense of being alone here. You are my protection. You are my glory. They've just stripped me of glory. But you're my true glory, the one who lifts my head. And notice he doesn't say, you, you give me glory or you give me a shield. He says, you are it. That is, it. The, the I am puts his arms around me. He's my shield. The I am declares I'm his child. That means that he counts me of infinite worth and he gives me his own glory. And he is the one, not a formula But he himself puts his hand under my chin and lifts my head and says, I I am the light. I am the love. Everything the people said is just put down one by one by the presence of this glorious one. Every lie is met with truth. It's who it is. Or you could say that David hid inside of truth. And all the lies can't get through truth. They just disintegrated the presence of truth. Talk about change. He says, after that, I just lay down and went to sleep. What? What? You're a refugee fleeing from your son in this condition. And and it says, he answered, I lay down and I slept And I awoke and discovered the I am had been there in my sleep and sustained me. 
and I got out of bed physically, mentally, emotionally charged and refreshed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That word see is again a unique word. This is a unique sentence, pure, see. The, the word see there is used in, especially in the Gospels to describe the appearance that, that's, I, I think, one of the best words. Instead of see, the word is appear. That's how they translate it, especially after the resurrection. Jesus appeared to the disciples. And it's this word, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see. Same word that's used, only they translate it as appear. That is, someone who was invisible to my eyes, but he was there now reveals himself into my vision and he appears to me and I see him. It's what happened with David. And this Psalm 3 is the, he could have been made impure by that whole dump of waste that was trying to get into the pure waters of life that flow through him, but it doesn't get in because he refuses to listen to it. That is, he, he refused to believe in it, but rather lived out just in the consciousness of he who is I am. The I am who became flesh and told us inside our humanity, I am and gave us the Holy Spirit, who is the I Am, living out life within us. I trust that Holy Spirit will reveal to you in this psalm, Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the I Am, that He shall make His appearance in your life at this time, that you shall know Him as you've never known Him before. So I bless you and declare that is the way it is.